Hey everybody, thanks for listening to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. My guest this week is a big one for me. It's Brian Canham. He's the lead singer of the Australian band Pseudo Echo. Now they had a hit uh, in 1986 with Funky Town, the cover of that disco classic. It reached number six here in the States. But after that, that was pretty much it. The band kind of evaporated after that. Over the course of the 80s, they did put out three albums, but the progression in their sound was was kind of mind-boggling. Uh, their first album basically sounds a lot like kind of what Duran Duran was doing, and their third album, which came out after Funky Town, sounds a lot like Bon Jovi. It's a strange, strange progression, and Brian and I talk a lot about that in this interview. We also talk about what he did when the band basically came to an end. He tells me the story behind his New York Yankees t-shirt in the Funky Town video. I've always wondered about that. And uh, when he basically came back to Pseudo Echo full-time and what he's doing now. He was a really nice guy, and I gotta admit, the episodes that have come out so far have been with bands that... I became passionate about later in life. Pseudo Echo, I had their Love and Adventure cassette when I was 13 years old. And I've loved them ever since and have always, always wondered, where do they go? In fact, I'm, I'm a little nervous, honestly, that um, I may be a little too enthusiastic in this interview. Brian, bless him, was kind enough to kind of indulge me. Hopefully it's okay. He was a really good sport and a really nice guy. He called me from his home in Melbourne. Well, Brian Canham, thank you so much for meeting with me tonight and talking about your career. i like to kick it off with giving you a little bit of background on how I discovered Pseudo Echo. So I remember very much when I was 13 years old, hitting, hearing, excuse me, living in a dream on the radio. And like I said, I was 13. And I loved it. And every now and then, I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. I don't know if you guys ever played there or went through there, but um, at 13, once in a while, not every time, but once in a while, it would play the extended version. Especially oh, wow. killer to me, yes. Yeah. And so whenever wow. it would come on, I would I would kind of stick around. Is this going to be the extended version? Because I loved when it kicked back <laughs> in. Cool. You know. Yeah. And um, and then Funky Town came along, and you you may be shocked to hear this. I like Funky Town, but that's not really what I go to or think about when I think about. Yeah, Silicon. sure. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean. I know. Yeah, I do know what you mean. Sure. And uh, so. I um, I was glad because I loved you guys and you were getting more popular and my friends now knew who you were and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I liked it because it was you and when you're young and you're discovering a band, you pretty much you love everything they do. But yeah, um, sure. there there's a lot of other stuff that I I like a lot more and and kind of prefer. But anyway, I wanted to kick this off with a question that I've been wanting to ask you for like 25 years. Where <laughs> okay. did you Where did you go? 
Okay. All right, well, about 89, the band kind of unofficially split. Um, mainly just to, you know, it was the end of the 80s. We were wondering where we were going to fit in with music as it was changing. Um, you know, we, we realised we were starting to slip a bit from popularity and you you do start to question, you know, is, is this kind of, should we should we pursue this or should we let it go? Or, and I was taking much more of an interest in production. Um, I think I'd, I was a little bit getting over being a pop star. Um, mm-hmm. It was very disruptive to my personal life, being a celebrity in Australia. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to understand our popularity in Australia was tenfold that of America. Right, um, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I had no private life, um, and I had children at the time. Oh, wow. It was becoming hard to be a father and be a regular mm-hmm. guy, um, always being recognised and hounded, and, and I just mm-hmm. it, it was hard. Um, so I think... When I was starting to get into production, I was thinking, this is great because I'm behind the scenes. I can still be very creative and uh, passionate about my work, but not necessarily public. Mm-hmm. Not so much being recognized all the time and things. So mm-hmm. I, I, I pursued that path and, and it was successful for me here in Australia. I produced um, quite a few sort of successful bands and things and and I really loved that that scene. So that's kind of where I went for a while. And then, believe it or not, I got into writing advertising jingles. I became really? a jingle writer. Yeah. You're not uh, going to believe this. Re- you are like, I, like I said, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I've interviewed. Now, you're the eighth person I've talked to, and at least half of them have told me something yep. very similar about wow, going well, into Well, jingles. I guess, look, you know, it's still creative. Yeah. Um, it's challenging. It's very challenging because... You know, you, you work to a brief and the client says, oh, we need this or we need that or we want to sound like this. And so it's it's quite um, sort of fulfilling uh, musically. You sometimes mm. sort of think, oh, this is great. You know, I've got to, I've got to produce a track now and they've got to be wowed by it. And it's just kind of instant. It's on the air. It's on TV and people know it. And, you know, mm. sometimes they become kind of iconic uh, advertising slogans or jingles. And so it's sort of nice in that way too. Um and, you know, it's a lucrative business. I was back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And mm-hmm. so I went down that path and I did that for a long time. And it, and it was a real change in my life. It was quite a cultural shock because I was no longer a big pop star. I'd walk into a right. meeting um, full of young hipsters and, and you know, uh, sort of be scrutinized over my work. Uh-huh. And, okay, you know, tell us what you got, what you can do for us sort of thing. It was like a job interview every time you went for one of these uh, meetings or a brief. So it was a real change in role, and I think I liked it. I think I liked to sort of be on the other side of, of the average Joe for a change and, and uh-huh. see what it was like trying to climb my way back up. Uh-huh. And so I, I did did like it. I liked it a lot. Um, occasionally you felt a little bit kicked about and a little bit sure. forgotten, but um, I had a good, strong family life and, and a lovely family, so I was lucky to have that support. Wow. So uh, I did that for a good 10 years. And during that time, towards the end of that period of my jingle session, um, I did sort of start to miss playing a bit and uh, the whole, you know, proper music rather than the sacrilegious style. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I did get back into producing again. Some more bands approached me and said, um, you know, would you like to produce this for us? And one in particular was a band, an Australian band called Chocolate Starfish. 
that go very far? What was the deal yeah, with not Brill? Really, no, it was just a okay. bit of fun. We did a few tours. Okay. We did an album, a couple of singles. We got a lot of airplay. We got a lot of TV coverage in Australia. Oh, it good. was a fun thing. It was it was my sort of um, indulgence into my influence when I was a kid. So it was kind of very Beatlesque. Oh, interesting. Um, it had a very 60s, 70s kind of flavour about it. Uh, it was more guitar-driven and song-driven. Did you put out an album that anyone could buy? Yeah. I mean, yeah, people, we did. like it, if it I was... found it now, it would have to probably be on eBay or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. I think it was on a YouTube, uh, sorry, iTunes for a little while. Um, it may still be okay. on there. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's around, but it's hard to get. It was just a self-titled album. Okay. And um, so that was with myself and a guy called Darren Danielson, who's to this day been in Pseudo Echo with me. And we went to school together. So it was kind of a nice sort of union of the two of us that put Brill together, toured it, and had a lot of fun. But once again, all those, all roads kept leading back to Pseudo Echo. Sure, <laughs> we, sure. We would be doing our Brill show, and then we'd do a, a Brill version of one of our Pseudo Echo songs in the set just to fill it up and do something familiar to the crowd. Uh-huh. And we'd always get a better reaction. You know, we'd always go, oh, here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they want to hear Funky Town. They want to hear, you know, listening and living in a dream. Yeah. So we ended up doing all the Pseudo Echo singles as this kind of 60s rehash version that blended in with the Brill stuff. Really? And once again, it just kept coming back to haunt us. And then people would say, well, you know, why don't you do Pseudo Echo again? Just get it over with, you know? Like, sure. You know, they love these songs and... Here I am kind of fighting the tide with this other band. Right. Um, you know, so I just kind of folded and, and and thought, look, maybe I need to maybe I need to think about the band. But John, you must remember backtracking a few years earlier, in, in so let's say eighty eight, eighty nine, uh-huh. when the band folded. Um things weren't going great internally with the band. Mm. Um we started to get on each other's back and yeah. There was a bit of a change in hierarchy with everyone was trying to be a songwriter and everyone wanted to be okay. a producer. And, and, you know, this happens a lot. It's common in bands. Sure. And, sure. you know, we had a formula and it worked and it was very successful. And when we changed that formula, it sort of suddenly wasn't successful. And, you know, I had to sit back and think, you know, what was that? Was it because I let go of the reins? Was it because I let mm. the other guys sort of muscle in on it? You know, I was trying to be diplomatic, but I think yeah. in a way... I, it, was, it took hindsight for me to look back and realize that it wasn't a good idea. Right. And so the band expanded really not under the best terms. Um, oh, we bad. were still okay with each other, but it wasn't the best terms. You know, we were sort of, everyone wanted to go their own way and didn't want to be in the right. band with anyone anymore. So it sort of just dissolved and that was that. So when there was talk of putting Pseudo back together, I sort of thought it'd be like, it would be almost like... Um, rekindling a past marriage, you know, mm-hmm. you sort of think, oh, sure. do I want to go back down that road? You right. know, it's like, yeah. you know, there was a reason we split and a reason yep. we stopped liking playing together. Do I want to go there? And anyway, right. so it, it took um, some prompting. I had an offer come to me one year. It was about 1997, 98. It was a New Year's Eve gig on offer, it was oh, a wow. retro club. And they played, uh-huh. they specialised in 80s stuff. Sure. And I got a call from this guy and he said, look, could you do a gig for me? I said, well, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to, to get all the sounds and all the parts yeah. and all the stuff back together so I could play it. And I don't want to do it unless it's, you know, really good. And he offered me a lot of money <laughs> to do it. He said, you right. know, right. name your price and I'll, we'll do it. And I said, well, okay, you, you know, you're making it hard to say no. Sure. Um, 
but then I did have the dilemma of the band thing. And I said, look, it doesn't yeah. matter how much money's involved. I still want to be happy. I don't want to do this and not be in a band with guys that I like or, you know, that there's problems with either. Right. So um, I I thought about it and I got one of the guys, I got Pierre, 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 what they call him? Uh-huh. Pierre <laughs> yep. I got him back. Yeah. And then I got my mate, Darren Danielson, who was in Brill with me, who's kind of really was responsible for me getting back into playing. Got okay. him to play drums, and then I got another friend from another band, another well-known Melbourne band, who was a good mate, and he knew all the okay. past. And I said, well, why don't you guys do it with me, and we'll do it that way. And that worked, and that's how we put the band back together, and that's how it stayed back together. Just Basically, from that gig, we got inundated with, with calls and people wanting imagine. to book us again. So it was yeah. a nice feeling. It was a great feeling, and that's pretty much, in a nutshell, how it how it perpetuated and got going again. Wow. Now, so, but even from, even from now, I've got a man. I've got a million questions for you. Yeah, especially you, you about. <laughs> I so, um, I want to talk a lot about race, the album race, but yeah, I want to sure. get to it in a yeah. minute. So, yeah. you're talking late '90s. You get this. You get this offer to reform. You play the show, the offers keep pouring in. Teleporter comes out in 2000, I believe, right? Yeah. Which yeah. is basically a four-song EP added with a live show, great live yeah, show, and some exactly. remixes and stuff like that. Um, but now from 2000 then until, I mean, I didn't even know until recently that Ultraviolet was a brand new album yeah, right. that came out last year, <laughs> right? I, so I, this week, in preparation for talking to you, I've been listening to it nonstop. It's great, by the way. So what what goes on in those fourteen years? How are you are you getting the occasional kind of like rewind eighties festival gig and that's how you're paying your bills? What are you doing for Well no, years? no, I've actually been um well the production side of it kicked in again. I had my production company, I had a okay. studio. So I was constantly working with local acts. Most of the acts were at a kind of intermediate level. They weren't big rock stars, they were, they were uh-huh. up and coming bands, but it was enough for me to survive on. It was it was you know, they were always happy and there was always a great uh, word of mouth about my production and my work. So Good. I constantly had bands coming back and then other bands hearing about it or other artists. I tended to work a lot more with solo acts, I guess. Um, okay. You know, one-on-one where they want me to sort of, you know, organise the band or play a lot of the staff for them and, and you know, write it with them. So that, that really was a big part of it. But from the late 90s, we we never stopped touring here in Australia. It wow. just keeps happening. So uh, yeah, the lineup changed true. a bit. Say again. Well, I was going to say. I mean, I, I I guess the reason why I'm this is a blind spot for me is because yeah. I'm in America yeah. and you're in Australia, yeah. being as active as ever. Yeah, never, you yeah. know, back just, on the radar, yeah. but Being it's just ongoing. not happening in a minute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in those sense. 14 years, we built the profile back up. Yeah. And we just built it up, built it up. But as I said, the lineup changed again a little bit. Some of the guys came back in from the race album. Then they went out again, and then, you know, another one comes in, another one. So the lineup kind of ended up just being me and, and a rotating backing band. Of, right. But not, not just hired hands. I always wanted them to be part of the band and sure. be on the artwork and be in, you know, be in the interviews and, 
and be in the writing and all that because I like the camaraderie of a band. I like the image of a band. Um, so we always had a band as such. So right. the lineup we've had now has been there for maybe five, six years, same band. Okay. And um, yeah, just touring strong and building it up. So the Ultraviolet oh. album was such a long time coming. You know, we, oh, I can we thought about it and, and it'd been mentioned and we said, how the hell do we do an album? Like, you know, they cost a lot of money. They take a long time. Who's sure. paying the bills while I'm locked away in the studio for three months? Yep. And um, we came across this idea of doing this crowdfunding, you know. We'd heard about it. it was oh, early you did it that way. Okay. Yeah, and my studio, I shared my studio with a record company at the time in a okay. building. And one of the guys there recently had gotten a new job in this company called Pledge Music Crowdfunding. And yep. he approached yep. me and said, you know, would you guys be interested in doing this? And I said, look, you know, a new album's been on the cards for a long time. We just couldn't work out a way for it to be viable. You know, I have to justify, yeah. you know, putting aside months of work of writing and right. playing and producing um, with no return and just do it for the love. And I said, it's kind of hard to justify it. Sure. So he said, why don't you do a pledge campaign? And I thought, you know what, this could be a good way to do it because firstly, we can gauge the interest of our fans. Mm-hmm. If if we don't reach the target, if we don't get enough interest, well, maybe we we need to just rethink about what we're doing for our career. Maybe yep. nobody wants to know about the band anymore, and that's exactly. fair enough. That happens, you know. Yep. So we we put together a pledge campaign. We looked at the way I was I was adamant about asking people for money. I said, look, I don't I don't want to be right. You know, putting my hand yeah. out and say, hey, give me some money so I can be a rock exactly. star. And I just didn't feel right with that. I yep. said there needs to be a two-way street here. They need to get as much out of it as I am. So we thought about it and we thought about it and we said, well, maybe if we we offer them really good stuff when they pledge, you know, we say Mm -hmm. we can give you some rare tour merchandise or some vintage stuff that I had since the 80s or, you know, they can come in hanging the studio where we do it or we just thought of all these things that could be seem like good value so they weren't just giving away money. We thought, well, Uh regardless of the album, they still get this in return. And that worked for us. Um, we had a three-month maybe campaign, and we reached it in the first two weeks. The target. Oh. So we were stoked. You know, we said this is a wow. great response. You know, this is a good good sign of our fans and our uh, yeah. Kind yeah. Of, you know kinship with with our fans. So yeah, um, and they care. They want you to keep producing. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a good feeling. So that, that's how the Ultraviolet album was uh, made. And Amazing. Came about. Amazing. Mm. So okay. Um, so I want to know a little bit about the trajectory of your style because yep. you were, you were kind of hinting at this a minute ago. I mean, the band that puts out Race in '89, there is yep. nothing about that band that would make you think they were the same ones that did Autumnal, Autumnal Park. Yeah, you know right, saying? right. I mean, you basically exactly. went to uh, you're basically Bon Jovi by the time exactly, Race comes exactly. out. In fact, um, something I kept thinking about. Everything I read about you guys goes on and on about how heavily influenced you were by Ultravox and Duran Duran. Now, yeah. you're going to have to confirm for me whether that's true or not. <laughs> but one thing I thought was that, because I love those bands, but I, I, I don't, I, people don't want to be pigeonholed, so I'm curious if that's yeah. accurate. But then secondly, I, thought it was, I was thinking about it today when I was going back watching your YouTube videos of the race period, and I thought yeah. they went the Andy Taylor trajectory. Just a 
you know? Yeah. They started off in the new romantic band, but then they went yeah. into like metal. But so yeah. so tell me where tell me first of all, were Duran Duran and Ultravox really the influences everything I read tells me they were? And then yeah, explain yeah, to sure. me the trajectory of your style. Because it basically went synth okay. synth and guitars yeah. and guitars. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Okay, I'll explain to you what happened there. Okay. Firstly, you have to understand I grew up with my music um background in the seventies. So uh-huh. uh I was influenced incredibly by bands like Spix, probably my number one band when I was a teenager. Really? Wow. Yeah, nobody had heard of them in Australia. And, and sure. it was only by chance that I discovered them because with the band Sticks, I discovered a lot of things in my, my whole life came through that band, believe it or not. And to this day on my bucket list is to meet Tommy Shaw because I need to be a fan and tell him about it. <laughs> well, I know how that is. It's the reason for this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I feel like an idiot, but hey. Uh, you know, it's it's because no when I was a child, I had these big list of albums that my brothers, I had four older brothers, a lot of them were into music, they would buy a lot of albums, and I didn't have to buy any albums, they were there, and I would just shuffle through them, and randomly pick out albums, and put them on, and have a listen, and one day, I was randomly looking through, and an album cover caught my eye, and the reason it caught my eye, and to this day, I'm a big fan of um, modernism in art, and mid-century art, and uh-huh. I saw this cover, and I looked at it, and it just captivated me. I was stunned, and I put this album on. To my um, to my knowledge, I didn't realize I was putting the album on the wrong way around, and I put it on side two. Okay. And I played the first track, and it was a song called Miss America. <laughs> Oh my God! What is this? This raging guitar riff. Wow! Um, and then it just blasts into this track, and then some massive synth comes in, and it's just crazy. And if you listen to yeah. Funky Town, the start of Funky Town, sure. and the start of Miss America, you'll see some massive parallels, and you'll hear where my influence came from. Really? Um, it, it wasn't a direct ripoff. It was just totally sure. it just came out in me, you know, like yeah. 10, 15 years later. And it was only till later on when I looked back at it, I said, oh, my God, I know where where that came from. Well, you know, I love this song. And then when you listen sure. to that, it's the same kick drum and guitar riff and then the synth. And so it was from that that these that a band like Sticks influenced me so heavily into that scene. And then I went on to bands like Boston and Kansas. Mm-hmm. And it was always the very big stadium rock producer yeah. that I was influenced by rather than the rough and ready stones and the and, and you know more of the cool stuff i was more into the kind of very neat and i learned a lot about production you know i used to listen to it in headphones and go how do they get the vocals to sound like they're over there when the chorus comes at here in the verse and i'm very analytical so i would sit there for hours with headphones on and just memorize things about the production so when it came time to me making my first album a lot of those ideas in production came out in our records and so now, this is where the twist is. When I okay. started my first few bands, the 70s were dying. They were out. Every uh-huh. band was, you know, pub rock or, you know, rock and roll. And it was sort of dated and had a very sort of unenthusiastic vibe about it. And then I heard bands like Human League, Simple Minds, yeah. Japan, Ultravox. I started to hear little snippets of this stuff. 
And I remember thinking, this is a cool sound. This is not traditional rock. It's it's moved away. There's something different about it. Right. And I was always looking to be different to the band up the road or the band in the next suburb mm-hmm. or, you know, I didn't want to just sound like another band that sounded like Kiss or sounded like Boston. Yeah. I wanted to be different and stand out. And then I found this sound and nobody knew about this sound. Nobody seemed to be aware of this sound in Australia. So they started really influencing me. And the first Australian band that I heard that made a twist and sounded like that was in excess. I remember hearing the first single, um, Just Keep Walking. sitting around with a few friends and I said these guys are cool this is a really cool sound and my friends kind of laughed and ridiculed and said ah no that's never going to happen that's that's just that new wave crap you know (laughs) they they, they still have their kiss and their rock and roll and and I remember just thinking you know I'm just a bit different to my friends I can tell like I like this oddball sort of new romantic stuff and they all love their rock and roll so that became kind of a blueprint of where I started to listen to bands the second wave when I was in my Uh 20s or my late teens and when I started and when I formed Pseudo Echo the the other guys that I banded together with they were also into the same stuff you know our drummer original drummer Anthony Aguero you know he loved Ultravox and kept saying listen this guy's drumming it's so musical it's not just Mm -hmm. banging he's got these great rhythms and he loved the rhythm section the bass and so they became kind of blueprints to how we formed our sound of Pseudo Echo um Fortunately for me, I wasn't so good at mimicking at that time, so I ended up mm. finding my own sound sort of unintentionally. And um, so that's where the, the 80s sound came. Wow. That's where we got wow. our first sound. Now, what happened during the 80s is that sound shifted. The mainstream 80s sound shifted over the period of maybe seven years. And so we, in Australia... You, it's very different to being a band in Australia than it is in the UK or in the US. In the US and the UK, you have a bigger fan base and it's more solid. You can mm-hmm. you can hold your sound and you can be true to that direction and keep those fans and that's that. In Australia, it's a very small fan base and it's very volatile. It moves really quick. They're yeah. into this, then they're into that. Then they all just shift and then they don't like that anymore. Then your fans right. are gone. So you have to subtly move with the times to keep in the pocket of what they're changing to as well. Mm-hmm. And that's an unfortunate thing about being an Australian band. And I, I don't think it's as much now, but it was very much so in the 80s. Still very yeah. volatile and moving all the time. So we had to change. We had to take that choice. We either move overseas and find a solid base or we stay here, which we're all family guys, so we were going to stay here. And mm-hmm. we, we realised we had to move with the times a bit. We said, you know, listen to these new bands that are coming out. Bon Jovi, Van Halen are making a comeback. Right. You know, ZZ Topper in the charts again. 
you know, it's it's guitar driven and rock. But um, yeah. So we did make a conscious effort to rock it up a bit. And for me, it wasn't that hard because I just had to recall on the roots that I grew up with. That makes um, so much sense. Now that yeah, you explain the sticks and boss and stuff. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. I, I was a, a competent guitarist, but in the 80s, yeah. guitar was very uncool. It was only cool sure. to play chorusy riffs and funky stuff. So I just de-skilled de- de- myself, kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just thought, yeah. Very uncool to do lead breaks. Very uncool to to wail away on it, so don't do it. Just keep this right. sound. And that worked for us. But when that resurgence of rock came back in, it was easy for me. I just went, oh, this is a piece of cake. This is just what I did when I was a teenager. Right, so right. So when you hear a track like Funky Town, and you can hear where I'm blazing away on the guitar. It's still got a bit of an 80s vibe about it, but you can hear the rock roots in there. Yep, um, That definitely. was just me just picking up where I left off on when I was like 16. Wow. Wow. Mm. And then when race comes along, you is that a bridge too far? Have you kind of stretched yourself beyond yeah, where you're comfortable? That's exactly, John. That's exactly what happened. What happened with Race, and this is why Race for me has always been a bit of an awkward record. Mm -hmm. I can can look at it from the outside and I can go, it's a pretty good record. It's got some good Mm -hmm. songs, it's got some good production. I can see why um, especially American fans like it. And Mm -hmm. um, I was really pouring in a lot of passion on that record. But as you said, it was a long time between drinks. We stopped at Love and Adventure. We did Funky Town in the interim, which was big for us. And then we had to come up with another album. During that time, we had new members, we had a new drummer. When when the new drummer came in, he was the brother of the keyboard player, uh, mm-hmm. the Lee brothers. So they kind of then the, you shift a bit of the diplomacy shifts a bit because all of a sudden, yeah. rather than four individual opinions, you got two individual uh, individual opinions, and then you got two that are one family that stick together. So it's yeah. kind of two versus two. And then you get the guy in the middle that's a bit on the fence and he's not sure. Yeah. So it ends up being me versus the band. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so what was happening, I was losing grip of what was once my baby. Mm-hmm. And and I'm always open-minded. I'm always one to try to be diplomatic. And I did want to go down that road. I thought, look, I, I can see it shifting. Let's go this way. But what happened on that race album is the songwriting uh, formula changed. The production formula changed and the mm-hmm. dynamics within the band changed. So there were some, a few bits of moments in the studio that were some really bad vibes. You know, there were some yeah. seriously bad moments where I just felt like, gee, this really isn't my band anymore. Not worth kind of, it. I've, been, yeah. I've been kind of, um, it's been a mutiny almost, you know, I've been hijacked yeah. here and the other guys have taken over my band. Yeah, so I sort of yeah. let go of the reins a bit. Once I made, I, I put everything I had into the album, but once I made it and listened back to it, I kind of went, you know, it's sort of not where I wanted it to go. Um, right. I probably would have had it a bit more of the original sound still in there. Okay. But um, I think we were damned if we did and if we didn't either yeah. way. You know, there was yeah. the end of the '80s and things were changing, and it was definitely a bridge too far. I think by the time we did it and came out with the video clip and the image. Nobody saw the transition from the Funky Town sure. guys 
to the race guys. All of a sudden, yeah. we came out. We looked like Bon Jovi or Van Halen. Yeah. And everybody just said, "Where's where's the band gone? The other guys? Where where are yeah. they? Where's the band we knew?" So once again, and, it's a common scenario in young bands. Yeah. They get and you were probably they want to change. Right. And were you? I mean, I would. I don't remember. Race, as you probably know, didn't make a huge splash in the States. No, right? no, no, not at all. Uh, not anywhere. And, right. Okay, so I didn't – were you being – I wouldn't even have known what the critical reception was when that album came out. Um, when it did, were you sort of getting dinged for changing too much or yeah, trying yeah. to kind of evolve well, with the time? Okay. You have to understand, all the hits we had to, to date uh, were my songs – my co-writes or my productions. Okay. When the race album hit, the first single out wasn't really my production and it wasn't my song. And that's a big change in any band's yeah. um, formula. Um, the singing style, the melody style, the guitar style, everything wasn't really my style. It was mm-hmm. the Lee brothers and their brothers and, you know, with yeah. their camp. So, okay. so I, I just went with it. I said, okay, I'll go with it. I could be wrong here. I need to, I need to, you know, take a leap of faith and, and leave mm-hmm. something to the other guys and to see, you know, maybe I'm not always right. And right. unfortunately, I kind of was right. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it got canned by media. The lyrics weren't really me. They canned the mm. lyrics. They canned the title. Um, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good reception. It, it, there was yeah. nothing positive about it. Even though, as you said, I think it's actually a pretty good record. It had been another band. They might have went right. to a great record. Exactly, yeah. Anyone else coming, that, yeah. put that out? They would have wouldn't got. Yeah, it would have been just fine. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly yep. right. I think the record is good, but I just I have a very disjointed yeah. connection with the album okay. because of the bad vibes when we made it. Yeah. And because of, of, of it was a point in my life where I let go, and you know I, I can look back in hindsight now and go, man, that was a really bad yeah. decision. A lot of bad decisions there. Um, I'm older and wiser, and I won't do that again. <laughs> so. so so, yeah. Do you think that that, well, first of all, I, I have to put in a plug for um, Over Tomorrow. I love it. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully you're at least proud of that one because I love it. Yeah, um, yeah, I love that. Do you um, now? Again, I I didn't. I I was watching the videos on YouTube for this, and of course you guys have the long hair and the fringe leather yeah. jackets and stuff like that. <laughs> the yeah. the now, so two things. Number one, the image was that you guys' idea, or was that sort of the label sort of keeping you in going with the times? 
And then do you think if you had put out a different record that your career would have continued? Um, do you think that the public reception yeah. of that record, if you had put out Love and Adventure tw- Part yeah, 2, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean, would Pseudo Echo have continued? I think we were done either way because okay. it was an end of that sound. That sound wasn't happening yeah. anymore in Australia. Yeah. It was yeah, old okay. and it was out. So we were kind of screwed either way. There was nowhere to go. As I said, in Australia, it was a small captive audience for a small time. And had we been based in America or the UK or Europe, I think maybe we could have pursued and, and, and maintained that original sound mm-hmm. and survived like many bands did, like, um, you know, uh, Depeche Mode or, sure. or um, you know, Ultravox, Silkier and Kraftwerk. You know, a lot of these bands are still together and still do well because they maintained that thing. They, yeah. all, they all did progress and, and evolve. There's no doubt about that. But it was sure. subtle. It was a yeah. subtle and gradual evolution. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think we were damned either way. I think there was mm. no, no, no way. And, and, Interesting. You know, so there, there we are. We, we looked okay. completely different. Yeah. And it was a quantum leap and just yeah. just too hard to, to handle for most people. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I have been fast. I've, I've been so curious to know the backstory about race <laughs> for years, so that's yeah. good to know. Yeah. So I, back to the beginning now. So you're, um, you're a kid, you love music, you are influenced by the stadium rock bands of the late 70s. Um, you and your butt, I, I, from what I understand, you and Pierre are good friends. You were kind of the yep. core, I believe, of yep. the band in the first, in the early days, right? Yep. And you were just saying a minute ago that you had, you guys were all sort of bonding over your love of the same music, your yep. the new wave that was coming out that your friends outside of music were not feeling too much. Mm. Um, what was the song, or was there a gig, or what happened that caught the attention of the music industry in Australia that got you your deal, got you noticed? Sure, sure. Well, there were a few sort of pivotal moments, I think. Um, Like, just from the get-go with Pseudo Echo, as soon as we did our first gig, there were just three of us. We didn't even have a drum. We just had an electronic drum machine. And I think Mm -hmm. because of that, we were easy to get on and uh, get off if we were going to be an opening act for somebody. So Mm -hmm. that was quite sort of how incidental that we were convenient but then I think they thought oh, they have a few cute songs and they're, they're, they're memorable and they, they got a good vibe and let's get them on so we got a lot of support gigs at the start um, but usually with the wrong kind of bands you know rock and roll yeah. pub bands okay. and it was until um, one day we were starting to build a bit of a sort of a following we were getting a good response and people were talking about us and there was a local band around Melbourne that were a bit more advanced than us and been around about another 12 months and they were pulling good crowds, and they got us to open for them. And then that was good for us. That was definitely mm-hmm. a right move. And, and that crowd were also then starting to sort of want to come to some of our own shows. And and then one day we got offered um, a support gig, just a one-off in Melbourne with mm-hmm. uh, Susie and the Banshees. And, oh, and yes. They had, and, they, and they also had Robert Smith playing guitar for them. On the oh, show. that was that period. Nice. So it was a it was a great you know like we yeah. just landed this and they probably thought look these guys are easy to get off and on they're cheap mm-hmm. they're 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 pretty good uh, let's whack them on so we just said sure. sure you know I don't even know if, how much we got paid or even if they paid us like we just mm-hmm. thought that was fantastic now I was kind of fairly industrious in the way that I would always be thinking I probably should have been in marketing if I had not been a musician <laughs> because I was right. always thinking about the way we were perceived 
and the way I could market my band so people would know about us. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I did in the early days is I invented the logo uh, in my dad's office mm-hmm. on his, with his drafting equipment. I went in and I drew that kind of Porsche-like pseudo-echo logo. Right. Um, you, can, you can see the influence from the Ultravox logo. You can see it from Simple yep. Minds. And as I said, the Porsche car logo. You yeah. know, it was a very 80s-style font. But I made my own font and I just drew it on graph paper and it's all square and rectangular and uh, very symmetrical. And then I went down the road from my dad's factory. He had his own business there. And I went down the road and there was a printing place. And I said, can you make this into a sticker for me, into a decal? Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, sure. And it's going to cost you, you know, $16 or something, you know, to do yeah. you know, 500 But if you spend the extra, you know, 10 bucks, they'll last you forever. They just never wear out. You know, so yeah. okay, let's go with yeah. that one. And then what I did is I used to go and find strategically find cool cars, just cool cars, not not anything outrageous, but cars that I thought that's the kind of person I would like to be one of our yeah friends. yeah. And I would go up behind the car when it was parked and put our sticker on the bumper. No way. And I did that to about a hundred cars: Ferraris, <laughs> Porsches, classic Carmen gears, Volkswagens, Jackson sure. yeah. Z cars, you name it. Uh-huh. They were always cool cars, but I thought, and I just thought, they're going to be driving around town in peak hour, and people are going to be parked behind them and go, what is Pseudo Echo, you know? <laughs> and I thought, that's one right. way of getting our name out there. So I did that. And then when we had this Susie Navanti's concert, I said, all right, we're playing here. There's going to be 2,500 people at the gig. When we finished the gig, I went out into the car park of the, about a kilometre radius of the venue and I had a little brochure printed up that I also drew with a little keyboard man stands behind the logo, very okay. craftwork influenced. Uh-huh. And I made up this little banner and it said, Pseudo Echo, Modern Electronic Music Playing At, and that was our, our next gig. It was our first headlining gig. So wow. I advertised it. I made this little brochure. I made about, I don't know, maybe 500, 1,000 flyers. And I went out there um, on my own and put them under the wiper blades of every car wow. in the area, you know, of that yes. concert in that area. Sure, and our sure. Next gig, we used to have, like, you know, we only ever supported people, and those gigs always had about 50 people, 100 people. And the next gig we did, it was a full house. We had 350 people there, and it was our first headline. And I think that just was such a success for us and for yeah. me. Um, you know, we were we had our first encore. We had you know, it was incredible. It was such a wow to me. That was it for me. Anything sure. else, I'd, I'd, I, in my eyes, I'd made it. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so that was where it kind of projected a real vibe around town. Everyone was talking about this new band, and uh-huh. we were doing well. We were getting great crowds along. We didn't have any hits. We didn't have any singles. We didn't have a record deal, but we were still having a great response and a great yeah, audience. Buzz. Yeah, and that's how it all started for us. Wow. And, and then wow. the most pivotal move after that was there was a show in Australia called Countdown. Yep. Um, it was a like a bandstand kind of show, you know, yep. like a, a music show where they'd have yep. a host and he would present new bands and they would play in the studios. And, you know, if it was half decent within the next week, you might have a hit record or, you know, there might be a bit of action happening in the charts. So, mm-hmm. But you needed to be an established band and you needed to have a record deal and all that for, for them to play you. Mm-hmm. It was a government-owned station, so it needed to be all legit. Okay. Anyway, the host of the show, he's an icon in Australia called Molly Meldrum, the guy who wears the cowboy hat. And uh, yeah. Molly had gotten word through sort of a mutual friend um, about Pseudo Echo, and he'd heard a bit. And look, it's his job to, to sort of present new things that makes him look good too. So right. he'd heard about us. So 
he came along to a gig one day and we didn't even know. He just turned up and we saw the hat in the crowd and said, oh, my God, you know, Molly Meldrum's at our gig, you know, like, this right. is cool. And this yeah. was after the Banshees. So, you know, we started having cool oh, wow. okay. and good reactions. So we were looking mm-hmm. good. And uh, he came backstage and everything and shook her hand and said, oh, great band, guys. You know, great to meet you. And we were freaking out. <laughs> sure, <laughs> it, was, it, was, sure. it was like Johnny Carson coming back. So, you know, yeah. Like, we were we were beside ourselves, and within a week following that show, he'd organised to have us on Countdown, and we didn't even have a record deal. I said, doesn't matter. Just I'm going to put you on, and I'm going to give you guys a big raid because I really think you're good. I think you deserve to have a record deal, and I think you you're, you're going to be big. So he awesome. really, it was due to him that he really championed the band. He really did. Yeah. And it, it could have backfired. We could have been unsuccessful, and it made him look like he was just you know canvassing something that he liked. But the fact that it, we went on to have a record deal and have a, a string of hits, um, mm-hmm. you know, it worked for both of us. You know, we, we were both wow. happy. That's great. Well, good to know. I mean, just what were you doing for a job when you were uh, – now, oh, I okay. think if I saw something, your yep. father was a cabinet maker, right? And you yeah, were yeah, sort of preparing yourself yeah. to take over the family business. Yeah, is that yeah, what my... you had done if this had never worked out? Well, there was – there's five boys in my family and I think four oh. of us worked at this factory and um, okay. it probably wasn't my thing. I did like the creativity of it. I liked to, I used to like to do the, the spraying of the furniture, the staining. I liked that side mm-hmm. of it. And I must have been the, the hippest looking spray painter because I had like a Devo suit that I used to wear <laughs> <laughs> with a headband and, and goggles yes. on my head. <laughs> yes. I, always made sure, I always made sure I looked real hip when I was doing it. I didn't like to just wear the car. Yeah. <laughs> you're staining furniture with your energy dome helmet on, right? I had this great white uh, jumpsuit, like a diva, and I even wore a belt oh, around the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I thought I was doing a video clip every day. Yeah, so, if you were going to work, so, uh, you were going to look good, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I thought, I don't need yeah. to look like a tradie. I need to look cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, for um, sure. So I did do that, and I even went to trade school, and, and, and that was tricky because, you know, that was a real sort of rough suburban Australian type there and mm-hmm. here I am with dyed hair and, you know, like yeah. looking very effeminate. <laughs> so right. I'm a bit of flack from the, you know, the other apprentices. But right. I, look, I could see it was fantastic because Dad was so supportive of music. He was a muso and he just loved me right. doing the band. So he was ideal. I could work with Dad and then I could say, Dad, I've got a gig on the weekend. I'm not going to come in next week or whatever. And he'd just say, great, you know, good, good yeah. stuff. You know, like he was so proud of me doing the music. and um, That's great. So, you know, even though he loved me doing the business, he still had three of the other boys taking over the business. So that was good. And okay. um, and pretty much I kept the cabinet-making gig. I kept having the job and going to work until we kind of had a hit in the charts. And then we had a national tour, so yeah. I had to go, and then I never really went back. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, was there, uh, like, during this peak, I'm assuming the ascension of Funky Town is you would consider your popular peak, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was what was life like? I don't even remember because I was so young. Were you headlining yeah. shows or were you opening for bigger bands? What were some of the bigger dates? In, bigger in America, gigs you, you mean, or in playing? Australia? Well, I guess both, really. I mean, in my, of course, my point of view is all all America. So I'm, yeah, you yeah. Know, I'm well, curious what well, you were doing it, over it was, here. It was extremely exciting um, in America for us because, firstly, this was another pivotal moment in my in my success of my career. Like you have to understand, right. you know, the first thing is is just 
having a band and then having an sure. audience and then having having a record deal, then having an album, then having a hit, then having a tour, then having an international tour. To me, the whole concept of having my song heard in another country, this is yeah. pre-internet, you've got to remember. This is yeah. this is when we're on an island here. And to to be known in another country for anything, you know, that was to do with my music was mm-hmm. incredible achievement for me. So when we had a release in America, I was beside myself. I, I All my dreams had come true, and if nothing else, I'd still succeeded. So it didn't matter from there on. I was dumb, and I was happy and Good. content. So when we came to tour America and it was going well, we had fantastic support. Our manager was really switched on, and he knew all the right people, and he put us together with a William Morris agent, and mm. he knew that the, the head of the company was his best friend, and so we got fantastic treatment we got the best gigs we -hmm. had the big rock and roll tour buses we had a fantastic crew and we toured the states we toured across we did high school tours we did all the college really circuit and it was incredibly successful and this is prior to funky town being a hit so wow we were building a crowd we were doing tours uh we were going to be embedded in these kids lives you know we were going to be their band they remembered from their summer and I can remember my manager telling me how important it was. And he said, you know, these guys are going to remember you forever. You're going to be so impactful. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't quite get that. But fortunately for us, the good timing was, is by the time we finished the tour, then we put out Funky Town, we had a fan base in America. We'd, we'd made a bit of a noise, a little dint. Mm-hmm. And so Funky Town was released and it just snowballed. We yeah. We didn't have to bribe anybody. We didn't have to do anything beyond the cause. You know, we just were ourselves and toured and radio right. stations just started jumping on it and getting a great reaction and, and it snowballed from, you know, from a couple of mm-hmm. stations to 10 to 20 to 100 to a couple of hundred, all yeah. playing it at the same time, which is a dream come it's true incredible. for any marketing yeah. of an artist. So sure. we kind of fluked it and then to, to make more of, of the faith and, um, you know, incredible um, timing, um, when we made the video clip, um, I'd just come back from the States when I was working on mixing and stuff, getting stuff prepared, and okay. we recorded Funky Town. We were shooting the video clip, and the fashions were changing. The Americana college look was coming to Australia a bit, the Michael J. Fox, Teen Wolf look mm-hmm. with the Letterman yep. jackets and the sports gear was happening. So it was a shift away from the sort of effeminate neuromantic right, into the right. more boyish look. So we yep. adopted that look. And I um, remember when I was about to do the video clip, I just I thought, I like that kind of faded jeans and high tops mm-hmm. and, and sports shirts. And I thought that's a good look, you know. It's a little bit more acceptable by the mainstream. Uh-huh. Uh, let's go for this look. And I just pulled out a T-shirt that I had that looked good. I liked it with jeans. It was red, white, and blue. And I didn't even know what it was. It said oh, Yankees man. on it. And you just stole my next question. <laughs> I have always, I've wondered for almost 30 years if that okay. was a conscious decision to, like, uh, ingratiate yeah, yourself okay. with the with American audiences. Yeah. Well, What's the story of the Yankees here. shirt? There's that shirt. I just bought it from a cheap tourist shop in New York when I was there mixing the album. Wow. And I just liked it because it was red, white, and blue. I, I'm not a sport fan at all. I don't know anything okay. about sport. I can enjoy it. I can watch it, but I'm not a, a follower, an avid follower. Sure, um, okay. I spend too, way too much time in the arts and with my music. So uh-huh. I didn't even know if it was baseball, basketball. I didn't really look at the logo that hard. I just, it's got a picture of a baseball <laughs> bat. And I, I just, wow. I, there was a ball and a bat, and I think I thought for a while it was even basketball. And uh-huh. 
and I just loved the look of it. I think it had the Uncle Sam hat on it, and it was, sure. it was red, white, and blue, and it was very American. So it was a great yeah. tourist thing to take home. So I took it home, and I, and I just happened to wear that in the video clip for Funky Town, and it was a bit sort of faded and pulled apart and that by then. Uh-huh. I'd, I'd worn it a lot just every day, and I thought, I'm going to wear that. It looks cool, you know. And then what do I know? The, the Yankees win the World Series when they release it. So, so our timing was like, you couldn't fluke it anymore. Like, oh, my you know, God. running up to me in the streets in America going, you guys rock, you're Yankees fans, you know? Yes. And I, go, I, I wouldn't know what they were talking about, and I'd just go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have so been dying to know the story of that thing. shirt for so long. So, yeah, it's funny how our fate can work with you sometimes. No kidding, you know, right? I, I was very grateful for that timing. I had no wow. idea what it was or anything, but you know, I had it on on a on, on a on a clip that just got so much airplay and so much um, broadcasting. Yeah, yeah, we were very happy. Uh, so now this brings me to another thing I have to know about, and North Shore is like in my top ten or twenty favorite movies of all time. Okay, yeah, 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 right. I was right. I was one of those kids who had it on VHS when I was a kid, and I watched it all the time, and my little brother watched it more than I did, and uh, I have the soundtrack, which there never was yeah. an official soundtrack. Yeah. I had to download it illegally. And yeah. I, um, I've i listened to the director's commentary, and they were very wow. – they spoke very highly of you. They were, they were well, saying how they it. felt like – you <laughs> will, <laughs> yes. They were saying yeah, yeah. how they felt like the pseudo-echo – they were lucky to get pseudo-echo, and they felt like your sound really fit the movie. Can you give me any story about how you were – do you remember anything about being selected to be in that movie? Really, I don't have a lot of um, uh, info about that cause, because I can tell uh, you what happened is, is one of the – guys who was new in the record company he came over from the new uk and he was based in um in new york i think and he was the one who did a bit of sort of soliciting trying to get the music out okay. there and he said i think i've got you a sync with this film it's just some low budget film but you know look it's a film mm-hmm. nonetheless and we didn't really know much about it we just thought oh it sounds cool we're gonna have some music in the film yeah you know it could be good and sure. I think we got a whole bunch of our songs in there in the end. Um, yeah. Three or four songs. Yeah, like three or four So it, we were in a score and we were just, we were dumbfounded and we didn't really know much about it. And then yeah. people used to tell us about this film that they discovered the band through. So they they are really important and they're, they're a real good score if you can get them. Yeah. So do you ever, I mean, so one of the people, I interviewed somebody uh, for the podcast who had a song in another movie almost the exact same time, actually. Maybe a year later. And he was saying, though, that whenever the movie airs, he gets checks. He gets mailbox money, we call it. Do you ever see any residual money whenever North Shore is played? I think I do, but it's so bundled in with all the other broadcasting stuff. I know when I've looked through on the fine print, occasionally I can see that name on there. So it it just gets all bundled all together. But, yeah, you know. It's not you're okay. gonna, not going to retire on it, but it's good. Right. Okay. Okay. Have you ever even seen the movie? I don't think I've seen it. I've seen bits <laughs> of it. I've seen I don't know if it would mean anything it. to you now. It's probably yeah, yeah, pretty cheap ball now, film, but it was the right? greatest like a, thing. Like a, like a colleague surf film. Is that sort of right? Uh, basically, yeah. A kid from Arizona in in the states. If you know where that is, it's landlocked. It's in yeah. the south. There's no oceans there. He wins a surfing competition basically in a wave pool, and he takes his uh, winnings and 
goes to the North Shore of Hawaii, of Oahu, yeah. to try and learn how to um, uh, surf the North Shore. And he oh. gets into this, you know, he gets into trouble, he meets a girl, he gets into a competition, right, right. it's all about, yeah, like, yeah. soul surfing versus competition surfing. I've never surfed uh, in my right. life, but this movie yeah, yeah. was everything <laughs> to me, you know? Yeah, and, I, I love uh, people speak like that of it, yeah. Yeah. Oh wow! So that's the story. Okay. So now, one thing um, I want to I want to ask you I'm going to ask you some money questions if you don't yep. mind, and you can be as specific or as vague as you want. I know these are personal yep, questions. Sure. Yep. Uh, considering that Funky Town was a cover, yep. what kind of like how much does I've always wondered if someone does a cover of a song and maybe their cover is even more well known than the original, which I guess based on if we're sort of nostalgic for the 70s, then lip sync yeah, is more yeah. noticeable, or if we're nostalgic for the 80s, then yours is, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. How do, how do, how does the, uh, do the royalties get split on something like that? Well, pretty much, um, it has changed in current years, and there is a little bit of backpedaling you can do to, re to recover some of the past, but the way it worked back then was um, a certain amount of the pie, as we used to call it, gets divvied up a certain way and there's a formula for a song mm -hmm. or a release and okay. uh, the percentages are quite complex and I probably wouldn't remember them all off, off hand but okay. there yeah. is, there's a percentage that goes to the artist, there's a percentage that goes to the producer, there's a percentage for the record company, that's usually a very big percentage uh -huh. and there's a percentage that goes to the songwriter and I think it goes in order of record company, songwriter producer and band maybe or band and then producer but okay. because there's several guys in a band usually each individual would probably make less than maybe the producer uh, most definitely less than the songwriter um, okay. and because we didn't write it um, Steve Greenberg who wrote it he did very well out of it he, he did fantastically sure. um, hard to know a figure but it would be over a million dollars I'm sure he made on that song oh wow um, but um, as an artist, we still made the band royalty, which is okay. Um, uh -huh. But then you've got to remember when you're in the band, everything that the band makes goes back to paying off everything you've spent. So yeah, true. you spend a couple of hundred grand making an album or half a million bucks touring or you anything you do, video clips, anything, that all just goes back into a pool, pays that yeah. off, and what's left over is split up between the band. So generally a band, an artist doesn't do that well if you don't do the songs. Mm -hmm. um, I had an extra slice in there because I was the producer. Um, okay. Unfortunately, I didn't recover a lot of the production royalties from anywhere outside of Australia, just due to mm. um, bad sort of handling of money and funds. Um, and it's often the way. It's often the case. You're in another territory and somebody else has claimed, I think another producer claimed it and it went, you know, went astray. Yeah. And it was just too hard to chase. So I never really cry over the spilt milk. I just be grateful for the moments I got and, and uh, leave it at that. So Funky Town is not like a gift that keeps on giving. I mean, it is in the sense that it, it's out yeah, there still look, in the public eye. So but you're not still making money off that. Okay. No, I don't really make a great deal of money off it. Apart from occasionally they recover some past royalties that were outstanding for it, um, especially my production royalties. So that, that's ongoing, actually. So there's always some okay. surprise. They go, oh, by the way, you guys were the artist, so you were the producer. We've just found, you know, 10 grand for you. And you go, oh, great. <laughs> you know, fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 ongoing. And it's it's something I definitely don't bank on. Okay, okay. Yeah, because some of the people I've talked to, um, 
and you know, I, I don't always like that term one hit wonder, but I've talked to some people mm. who were one hit wonders, so to speak. And, yeah. um, but they, uh, I, you know, they, the difference is they wrote those songs. So okay. Yeah. Some of them could yeah. live, you know, an upper middle class lifestyle the rest that's of exactly their lives right. Yeah, that's right. because they wrote the song, you know, and, and you've got to remember John, the difference of the volume of people in America, as opposed to Australia. You know, I've written, you know, half a dozen hits that have been top tens in Australia. Yeah, good point. Like a fraction of one song happening in America. So it's yeah. just a different league. But, um, you okay. know, we, we're sort of used to that, and that's a reality for us. Okay. So then, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, then even maybe at the height of your popularity, um, yeah. you weren't necessarily like, Multi multimillionaires, or were you? No, I mean, no, okay. no, no, we weren't. But but I myself, because I was a pr- primary songwriter, was uh, very well off. I was comfortable. Right, okay. I didn't have to worry about money, and I had a house and cars right. and travelled okay. a lot, and and was comfortable. I wasn't flamboyant. I never lived a kind of crazy rock star lifestyle. Right. Um, I was always kind of sort of fairly humble about that, and uh, okay. but I enjoyed my life, and I you know, sure I, I certainly wasn't short of a quid. Okay. So then when you decided after race then to make the transition, like you had had enough basically of being in the spotlight. Um, Do you, how big of a, of a change in the lifestyle that you're used to, do you need to get ready for in your situation? I mean, I don't know how successful as a producer you were after that or as a jingle writer or whatever. Were you able to sort of, I mean, was it lean times or was it still fairly okay? I mean, um, we just, it, was okay. it was different, I was, but it was okay. I was very, yeah, I was versatile. So I was, I was okay, but I wouldn't say that was for everybody. I can tell like a lot of the other guys that have been in the lineups over the years, uh-huh. um, a lot of them did it hard. A lot of them found, you know, they had to get just a regular nine to five job and then they had to yeah. get a real reality check. And, and it can really mess with a lot of people. I can see how it affects a lot of my peers. Um, you know, they, they do have some sort of weird hang-ups about it and chip on their shoulder from things, and it can really affect them. I, I always, to this day, am grateful for what I had um, in the times, and mm-hmm. and I'm grateful for what I have now. You know, I have a lovely house, and I have a beautiful partner, and it's it's a good life, you know. Um, good. And I do what I want to do, and I, I can just be free, you know, and it's That's really great. good. But it wasn't – it isn't like that, and it wasn't like that for everybody. I can mm-hmm. – can assure you of that and and it's it's only because i'm extremely versatile and i'm active and i keep a finger in it and i've produced so many bands in australia and co-written so many songs and i've always got something on and pretty much everybody in the music industry here would know me and know who i'm still active okay so i have have great respect for my peers and that means a lot to me sure so do you then primarily these days make your living off of music related Ventures with oh, the totally. gigs. Yeah, or, yes, okay. totally. Because yep. I think you had mentioned that you owned a production studio or something like that. Is that? Yeah. Yep. Do you still do that as well, or? Um, I t- I actually folded the studio because I was doing so much with with wow. the band touring. Okay. So I I still have the studio, but it's now at my property, okay. out in the in the you know, out in the forest. <laughs> so it's, it's a oh more wow! Okay. Hippie hippie like environment. Yeah. Like, you know. I, okay. I just chill out here, and I pick and choose what I want to work with and what I want to work on. Yeah. And I would just take take my time with it, and and so now when I'm producing music for myself, instead of it being you know in a corporate situation where you're paying monthly rent and you you got mm-hmm. kind of a corporate stagnant feel, I have a beautiful natural feel in the forest here. I, I don't great. have to worry about paying the rent of the the studio or whatever. It's 
it's very relaxed and I can be very yeah. indulgent. Great, great. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you're, you know, the hippie, kind of a hippie style. <laughs> I was watching that um, that version of Love and Adventure uh, that you do acoustically. <laughs> I saw that clip oh, okay. on YouTube. That was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And I was curious oh, okay. if, yeah, I was curious if when you, when you write, uh, even back then, I mean, everything, at yep. least in the beginning, was so synth-based. But were you? Yeah. Is that how those songs generate? Is you on an acoustic guitar, or do they no, get? No, they are they grown no, elsewhere? Okay. From very electronic devices, usually. Okay. Um, very uh, experimental and and very uh, cutting technology. Okay. So what I did there is I did the reverse. I pulled them yeah. back and and then deconstructed and took all the stuff out yep. and I said, what are the fundamental chords here? And they were actually quite surprising to myself that they had some nice musical depth. I think that, you know, I, for many yeah. years I sort of wrote them off as kind of very simple pop songs with four mm-hmm. chords and, and a lot of production. But I think that's often a test of a song. When you take that I away agree. and you go, what is in, in the actual song? You know, like, yep. I, I know it's got four chords, but are they nice four chords? Do they yep. work nicely with the melody? Do the lyrics sort of say something when you strip them back? So it was nice for me, a nice experience, because I've recorded a lot of my stuff acoustically. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I was I was knocked out by that for the same exact reasons. You never, I mean, I'm a huge like human human league and Duran Duran fan yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. But it's really a true test when you can die, when you can yeah. distill those songs down to their basic mm. essence and just perform them on a, an acoustic guitar. If they're yeah. still yeah, strong, right. then you know you've got something. That's 100%. that clip blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's okay. uh, that's often the test for me when I do a song. I sort of strip it back and just say, is there a song there or is it just all production? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. Right on. Well, looking back then, do you, would you, I mean, do you ever have any regrets? I mean, it sounds like you were pretty burnt out by, and the <laughs> band was really done by the time it all kind of yeah. came to an end. Do you ever look back and think, you know, I wish we had soldiered on somehow or we had, yeah, I, I think or are you comfortable time... with where you're at? Look, I am really comfortable and I don't really have regrets. I think that it's, it's. I love my life where I am now. Mm-hmm. I love what I do and I love my time and it's it's good. It's all good. But yeah. if I were to look back at it, it's just the naivety. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. I probably should have had better financial advice. I probably should have had a better personal manager. And I think also when we called it a day with the band, there are very few bands that have a record company that says, hey, guys, we'll make another record if you guys want to make one. Yeah. We'll put up the money. There are very few scenarios where that happens. It's usually the band saying, we want to make one more album, give us a chance, and the label says, no, no, we're good. <laughs> we had enough. Uh-huh. Um, they were actually saying to us, we'll, we're happy to stand by you, and we were the ones mm. who said, no, no, we're good. Wow. We've we got other plans. That's that ballsy, man, walking away yeah, from that. It, it was. It was a strange thing. I actually thought... I remember the decision, there was a, the way it, it, it balanced. And um, there were the Lee brothers, there was Pierre Giuliotti, and there was myself. They were the kind of three opinions you got because the mm-hmm. Lee brothers were always um, united as, as family. They never gave you a second opinion about somebody. They never made a different opinion between them. It was always one right. opinion from those two, then one from Pierre and one from myself. And we... Uh, we, there was more distance between us and there was a lot of mediating with management and, and band. And um, and I got the call and they said, look, the Lee brothers don't want to continue. They want to mm-hmm. go off and do their own solo thing or, you know, a new band. Yeah. Uh, Pierre was on the fence. He was kind of, 
undecided. undecided was your friendship sort of on the rocks at this point? Because you two were sort of the core, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely was. We we, we hardly saw each other socially or anything. Okay. And okay. and I I remember I have always two two chains of thought when I'm faced with these decisions. I have a a passionate thought, and I have a logical thought, and I'll always yeah. have those two. And then I need to wrestle those two together to yep. work it out. Yep. And I way. do remember, yeah, and I do remember thinking passionately. I want to let this go. I want to move on. I want to do new things. Uh, logically, I can see that we have a business here, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty good business. It is a bit waning, but it's still there. We still yeah. they've just offered us, you know, all this money and time and support to go and make another album. Wow. So I was faced with these two things here, and and basically what happened is that because the Lee brothers said no, they didn't want to do a new album. Um, Pierre took the stance of I'll only do it if it's the lineup that it is, mm-hmm. and so that kind of pretty much made the decision for me. Because mm-hmm. I just yeah. thought, well, well, then that's that. We're not going to do it, okay? So it was easier for me because I didn't have to make the decision. It was kind of made for me. Yeah. And yeah. At, the, at the time, it was probably a good thing because I went on to do better stuff with production, and I made. I didn't go into being a solo artist straight away. I got on the mm-hmm. other side of the desk, and I think that was an integral part of what's made me me now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to get like out it. of the limelight and get into the real side of it. Sure. Well, now yeah. that uh, Pseudo Echo is back to be basically being your full-time job, I mean, when are you going to – do you guys ever come play in the States? I mean, and I know that that's not feasible unless I'm guessing mm-hmm. you could get on, you know, one of the nostalgia tours, right? I mean, I've been to several yeah. – Regeneration tours where there's Howard Jones and Human League and yeah. Tom Bailey yeah, and Midger and I mean yeah. why why not you guys or is it just not well, feasible financially to no, do that? Well, it is really hard financially, but um, which which leads me back to something you may not have been aware of, but we did actually come to the states a few months back. Uh, you did? We did one show. Yeah, we did one show in oh, LA, well. the Viper Room. Okay. Um, and we did it as a another one of our pledge campaigns. We we had oh, this idea. We said, great. We said, how do we get back to America? We need to go there and and pick up our pieces and open it because you know we play Australia all the time and we thought we need sure. to branch out. We need to to go back to some of the other territories that we had. So we had the campaign again, and we had the idea that we would go to the Viper Room, do a show, and record it, and have a live album as well. And oh, so that yeah. became became the whole package and we, once again we had a overwhelmingly successful campaign and and it was close it was almost a bit cheeky because it was close off the back yeah. of the last campaign and it was almost oh, wow. the danger of it being too close but sure. we, did, we, we made it no worries uh we we got it funded we had a plan and it went well we went to la uh we did the show there unfortunately it was a bit under the radar we didn't really yeah. do the right campaign at the time not many people knew but Nonetheless, the place was a good crowd attendance there, sure. and there was a good vibe. Uh, we'd have the crew from Pop Asia come along. Okay. They were really impressed, and they said, oh, let's look at shows in Asia and blah, blah, blah. So we, it was yeah. a good to a, a good a visit, rather. And the album came up great, and I've just finished mixing it, so that's going to be released in the next month. Oh, excellent. And, wow. um, and it, you know, it's a great vibe, and it really yeah. you can really feel the energy and our enthusiasm for doing a show back in the States. So it yeah. was the start. It was the first okay. small step um, of hopefully okay. what will be, be an ongoing thing. 
Well, hopefully. I mean, I don't. I see no reason why you guys can't be a part of those tickets. And um, yeah. I, I, they're great. They're so much fun for people like me. I mean, I grew up, yeah. like I said, in Salt Lake City, Utah. And bands just they do now, but they did not come through there very often when I was a kid. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. I live in yep. I live in Denver, Colorado now, and it's bigger. It's a bigger market. Right, yeah, we beautiful. get more shows, but yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious. Do you? I noticed that there were no race songs on Teleporter. Do you ever right. work any race songs into your live set now? Um, we we did uh, play Over Tomorrow a few times. Okay, good. Um, and then we just stopped playing it because of the no. way it was so different to the rest yeah. of the set. Yeah. And then once again, the Lee brothers were in the band and then they were True. back out of the band and then it was almost yeah. like revisiting the past. So I yeah. think it was a case of like, you know, okay, I'm going to start fresh here. I'm going to get rid of the negative vibes and the ne- yeah. negative association and just go mm-hmm. with the positive part of the career. So it, it's dominantly, uh, predominantly um, autumnal park um, okay. with, with uh, you know, four or five songs from Love and Adventure and, mm-hmm. and then some a couple of new ones thrown in from um, Ultraviolet. Okay. By the way, I don't th- if I I looked and I don't believe those early albums are on iTunes. I think no, you can we buy Funky a- Town as part of like a compilation or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, but- we've had a problem there. Um, we had a problem with the record label, the, the distributor. So they were a small uh, company and they folded, and now we've got legal problems with the rights internationally. So we're actually going through that at the moment to get it back on iTunes. Yeah, um, it's, it is available iTunes Australia, but I'm not yeah, sure. Probably. Yeah, probably. I figure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, but make, it's yeah. a bit of a mess. So we're we're in okay. the process of uh, getting that back. We're doing a deal again with EMI, and they're going to take care of it all for us, which will be good. Okay, okay. Um, well, I think that's about it. I'm curious. Do you have any, do you have a favorite pseudo echo song? Mine is listening, and I'm curious what yours <laughs> cool. is. Well, that's a <laughs> yeah. really sentimental favorite for me because it was like a really? song in Australia. That's yeah, what I yeah. But um, uh, it, it varies. It varies all the time. I I go through so many and. You know, I think a beat for you was always the favourite yeah. for me. I like that it's kind of got a minor dark sound about it. goes well but I have I have many. I have many okay. I think. Probably changes, right? Okay. Yeah it does, it does. And then I have one other question and uh I'm curious if when you wrote See Through were you mm-hmm. trying to almost completely rip off Duran Duran Rio.
you know, um, I'm not going to take all the blame here <laughs> or pass the buck, but um, our keyboard player at the time, Tony Lugden, he, uh-huh. he, he was infamous for plagiarising things. Okay. And he co-wrote it with me, and, and there's the keyboard riff that he plays in here, not the main riff, but the riff underneath the chords uh-huh. of the verse. Uh-huh. Straight out of a Duran Duran. Oh yeah, there's even that bass break in the middle. You know, it's the like exact template. Yeah. Well, we, sometimes we were just so obvious, and we didn't even know it at the time. And and I I have to be sympathetic because I hear bands today, and I go, you know, does anybody else know that that's a Beckman Turner Overdrive song, or that's a Who? Or... Right. <laughs> These kids not know it, and that must have been what what adults were saying about us at the time, because I can hear some really obvious um, plagiarism. Yeah. But it was totally unintentional. But I think you just no. it, you you live and breathe it. You're listening to it sure, all the time, and then when yeah. you have all these ideas, you don't know where they've come from because it came from the album you were listening to last month. You know. Yeah. So yeah, that, there was a bit of. Um, Okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's great. And everything, (laughs) that's the only thing that is like so obviously close to me. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, everything else is obviously influenced of the music of the time, but that one is like almost note for note. So I was just curious. John, when we were making that album, Duran Duran were in the studio next door making. Are you serious? Yeah. And. Oh. we we were like little puppy dogs following them around, right? And, and, and admiring their their road cases with their names written on the road case. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> say, yeah. Check out, check out this guy. He's got this gigantic road case with John Taylor written on it. Which is, how cool is that? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> we're, we're that's gonna be us awesome. one day. Nick Rhodes had about fifty keyboards in there, and then, and and, oh. and there's this great story where um. He uh, he was just such a keyboard snob. He'd have so many keyboards, and, he, and I don't think he really knew how to use most of them. He just would turn them on. If I had a cool sound, he'd go, okay. And um, the engineer was an Australian, and he was a friend of ours, and he, he was he was thrilled that he was working on it. He'd, he'd give uh-huh. us a scoop every day about what went on in the sessions. <laughs> he said, um, he said, yeah, well, you see that new keyboard over there? Uh, you know, it's like some $10,000 keyboard in uh-huh. every day. That's probably like about $50,000, like... Right, an expensive keyboard. He said it just came in and they unravelled it, and, you know, uncased it and plugged it in and put it on. And you got to remember, a synthesizer. There's a million sounds in there. You can make any sound sure. with it, and they come sure. they come with a bunch of sounds. And every button you push changes the sound. So apparently, Nick, he's eating his uh, lunch. He's got a hamburger in his hand, and he's uh, you know he's still got his mouth full, and he's got the hamburger in his hand, and he walks over to the keyboard. And with the hand that the hamburger is in, he kind of rests his knuckle on one of the keys and it makes a sound and goes, and he says, I don't like it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, which is one of my favorite all-time Duran Duran stories. That's so I good. Can, I can see how he would have done that because he just had keyboards everywhere and it was like, sure. he just plug one in and make one noise and go, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my so gosh, for the cheeseburger in his hand and everything. Hand. Yes, that's so <laughs> Just great. Just kind of leaned on it with the back of his knuckle and went, yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man, that's yeah. great. So yeah, we were like puppy dogs every day in the studio trying to hang out with them and, you know, they'd give us some advice. I can and, imagine. You know, and this and that. And so you could see where the plagiarism would have come sure, from. Sure, sure. Almost like paying homage to them, you know. Oh, of course. Well, it was great. Yeah. It's great stuff, man. Well, look, yeah. I... Uh, I think I asked everything I had in mind. I could not thank you enough for your time. Oh, no, pleasure, it means a lot. You're helping a 13-year-old kid 
achieve a dream here, and I'm so no, grateful Greg, for you. Thank you. have it Brian Canham such a nice guy I gotta say of everyone that I've talked to so far for these uh, for this podcast he's the only one to email me back and thank me for the interview now I've corresponded with everybody and they've all been very nice and everything but he emailed me before I could email him he's the only one to do that so far super nice guy um, obviously not a sporto like he said because it actually wasn't the Yankees that won the World Series it was the Mets but close enough, both from New York. And I have, I watch, I've watched North Shore more times than I can count. So fascinating to hear that he's never even seen it. Not the whole way through. A uh, couple things to keep in mind. Number one, Ultraviolet is an excellent album. If you're curious at all what that band sounds like now, and if you're a little skeptical or iffy about whether they still got it, they still got it, trust me. The other bit of information is that that Viper Room show that he talks about, they also just released that on CD, like literally within the last few days. So go find that wherever you buy music if you're interested. In fact, I think they make the most money if you buy it off their website. Maybe try that. All right, in the weeks ahead, we got a couple more 80s one-hit wonders. Uh, again, these are going to be a surprise. I don't, want to, I don't want to tell you who they are. I think you'll like them, though. And uh, also a huge, huge, huge thanks to Aaron Syred. We couldn't do this without him. Thanks, everybody. See you soon.